Thanks to everyone who participated this morning in sending in prayers and uh, reading and all that everybody is doing right now. Uh, Christine Buzan for doing our uh, communion table up as we journey through Lent and begin to move toward Good Friday and Easter. Let's not forget the time of season that we're in. Um, Also, we are starting a brand new series. And normally I would say each sermon is meant to be kind of a stand-alone sermon. So if you just check in one Sunday, you can go away and not worry about having to listen to any other sermon in your life. No, not in your life, but in the series. But this series is a little bit unique. Over the next four Sundays, we're going to journey through Ecclesiastes. And the first two sermons are going to be a little dark. And so I need you to stay with me right to the end. And so a little plug to stay to the end because there is a resolve that comes at the end of this series, Uh, but especially the first two sermons, they get a little bit dark because Ecclesiastes is that kind of book. Any book that starts out with meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless, and everybody in here is feeling Yes, that's exactly how I feel today as we move through this pandemic season and wondering if we're ever going to get out of it. So six months ago, when I thought about doing Ecclesiastes as a sermon series, I did not anticipate that we would still be journeying through this time. And so I'm very aware that people are feeling a little bit weary, a little bit devoid of meaning, uh, but stick with me as we go through Ecclesiastes and we'll come out the other end with hope, I hope. Okay, so in September 1942, a man by the name of Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist living in Vienna and also Jewish, he was arrested and he was transported to a Nazi prison camp, along with his wife and his parents. Uh, Three years later, when his camp was liberated, most of his family, including his pregnant wife, had passed away, but he survived. And in 1946, he published a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Has anyone here read this book, Man's Search for Meaning? Uh, It's one of the, um, I think, most influential books that I've read uh, in my life. It had a profound impact on me. And Viktor Frankl wrote it in nine days as he reflected on his time in a Nazi concentration camp and what he observed during that awful period. And one of the things that he observed is that the difference between those who had lived and those who died often came down to one thing, and that was meaning, a sense of meaning. He observed that in the camps that those who found meaning, even in the most difficult of circumstances, were far more resilient to suffering than those who did not. It's a profound thing, isn't it? To maintain a sense of meaning, even in the midst of suffering, equals resilience, resiliency. And that was Viktor Frankl's conclusion, and you can read about it. Uh, If you want to borrow my copy, feel free to do so. Well, according to a poll that was done a number of years ago, and it might be different now, but this poll looked at uh, people in North America, and it discovered that four out of ten North Americans have not discovered a satisfying meaning in life. 40% of people have not discovered a a clear sense of purpose or a clear sense of meaning in their life, or they're neutral about what that meaning or that purpose is. And I wonder if that contributes to a lack of resiliency sometimes in our lives 
when we face very difficult times. So this idea of meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless, might ring true for very many people within our culture and very many people even sitting here today or watching through the live stream. That might be what is on your heart. I know sometimes it is on mine. So over the next four Sundays, uh, we're going to explore Ecclesiastes in search of meaning. And the purpose that we're doing this is so that we might become more resilient to face the difficult circumstances in life. Okay, so uh, a warning I've already given, and that is it can get a little dark, but stay to the end uh, because we're going to find some hope. But I was really struck with what Pastor Samuel said last week. He was talking about that need for a proper diagnosis, that we have to have our our, our condition diagnosed first before we have the prescription and before we get the remedy. Well, the first uh, couple of sermons here are going to focus on that diagnosis, looking at our condition, looking at our state. Uh, A few years ago, I decided to replace the flooring within uh, the main floors of our house. And I said to Christine, you know, I've got a couple of days. I might as well just do this. And uh, about six weeks later, um, (laughs) I sort of finished. Uh, But I got to the kitchen and I realized that the kitchen floor was actually at a different level than the rest of the flooring on on that level. And it really bothered me. I didn't want to do a transition strip. I didn't want to have this bump as you head into the kitchen anymore. So I decided in my wisdom that I was going to put it right down so it would be the same level. Well, to my horror, I discovered that there weren't just, there wasn't just one layer of flooring underneath that. There was two, and there was three, and then there was another subfloor, and it took me forever, this little tiny kitchen area, in order to rip up everything that was in there. And the whole kitchen, Daryl knows what this is like, many of you do, it just looks like a disaster. And you think for a few minutes, am I ever going to recover from this? Am I ever going to come out to something that I can walk on without getting a staple through my boot? And uh, so the kitchen rests like that for a little while before it is remade, right? That's what's happening in Ecclesiastes. There is a lot of deconstruction that has to happen first. A lot of tearing down, a lot of stripping away through most of the book so that we can be remade, so that we can be renewed toward the end. In fact, as we read through Ecclesiastes, here's one great tip for you if you're going to go home and read it over the next few weeks. There are actually two voices, two key voices in the book. The first voice is the kind of framing narrator. This is the person that introduces the main voice and also comes back at the very end of the book in order to give a kind of a summary, kind of wrap things up and give a conclusion. So that's really important to watch for this framing narrator. But the main part of the book, the main voice of the book, is this person called the preacher or the teacher. Literally in Hebrew, it's the assembler, the one who assembles people in order to transfer knowledge or wisdom. And that's the main voice in this book. And it's identified for us, right? Who is it? It's called someone who is son of David, a king in Jerusalem. And so many people identify this person with Solomon or a Solomon-type figure. But here's the interesting thing to me. In Proverbs, which Solomon had a big hand in, you see a lot of optimism. 
It's almost like Solomon is in his heyday. He's in his glory. He's got some experience in life. He's got a, a sense of purpose. He's got a sense of, of uh, his life is on track. And so in Proverbs, here's what we hear. We hear that if you apply wisdom, your life will go well. And there's a great optimism. But then comes Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is kind of like Solomon or a, a Solomon type figure. That's a little more mature, a little older, He's had a few knocks and bumps along the way, and he's discovered that that doesn't always go as planned. And so there's a little bit of cynicism, a little bit of maybe reality that sets in as we go through this time. And so the teacher, this assembler, deconstructs life for us. He peels back the layers, or at least he peels back the layers of our attempts to find meaning in life. And that's what we need to explore first. Well, a key phrase in Ecclesiastes that is not only known in the church, but known in culture throughout the world is what? Anybody? Life under the sun. Life under the sun. And for me, when I think of that, I think of Mexico, uh, because that's where I'd like to be right now. Life under a warm sun, but that's not what it means. Actually, life under the sun occurs, I think, about 26 times within this book. And it refers to this limitation of our observation within the world that we know. I know some people would go so far as to say life under the sun is life without God. But it's not quite that. We'll discover that in a moment. God is still kind of present. But life under the sun is the limitations of our observations as humans on earth. That's what he restricts himself to, the observations that he has about life around him. And his conclusion in the old King James is vanity, vanity of vanities. You're so vain, you probably think this book is about you. It's not that kind of vanity, is it? In fact, in older translations, when they use vanity, it's a little bit misleading because we think of a vanity mirror, something that you look to see yourself. But that's not what we're talking about here. So newer translations have the word meaningless, and I think that's a little bit closer to it. But it's not that life is totally meaningless. It's more that the meaning of life is really hard to grasp and hold on to for a variety of reasons. And so the word that I want to introduce you to this morning is the word vapor, because that's what this word really means, hevel is the word in Hebrew. Hevel, hevel, everything is hevel. We're having a hevel a life, right? So this is hevel, and it's vapor. Think about this for a minute. Have you ever seen someone vaping in their truck while you're sitting at a stoplight? I saw this, remember, for the first time uh, some time ago, and this guy was on his e-cigarette, and he had rolled down his window a little bit, and the volume of vapor that came out of that window, I honestly thought the cab was on fire because I had never seen it before. Just the incredible cloud that whoosh comes whooshing out. That's vapor. That's hevel. That's what we're talking about in Ecclesiastes. This sense of vapor, it occurs 38 times over and over again within this book. The idea is that life is like smoke. Life is temporary. The sense that a breeze comes up and simply blows it away. Or the sense that life is unpredictable or unstable. You think it takes a certain shape. You see your life shaping up a certain way. And all of a sudden, everything changes. It's that unstable. 
And it appears sometimes to be kind of solid, something that you can really get your mind around. But, but then when you try and grasp vapor or smoke, what happens? It just slips through your fingers. You can't hang on to it. And sometimes when you're stuck in the middle of a great, great big vapor cloud or a smoke cloud at your fire, you can't see clearly. And sometimes when we're in the middle of life, isn't that the way it feels? Sometimes life circumstances come at you and you just can't see clearly anymore. That's what he's talking about here. Hevel, vapor, smoke. That's what life is like. And I think as soon as we start to dig into that, we go, yes, absolutely. I can see that. And I think that's why I love this book so much, because it has so much truth for life under the sun, life as we perceive it, life as we observe as we go through this. So why is this? Why is life vapor? Why is life so smoky? Why can't we grasp a hold of it? Why can't it just stay one shape that's predictable, that we know what it's all about? Why is the meaning of life so hard to grasp? Well, there's three central reasons for this that we find throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm just going to lay them out for you. And this is the depressing part a little bit as we go through this. And then you can reflect on them after. So the first reason why life is hevel is this, the march of time. Anybody feeling the march of time? I'm coming up to uh, a significant birthday in April, and I can remember the day when my father-in-law was celebrating this particular 50th birthday. He actually got a motorbike, come to think of it, for his 50th. Just slide that in there while I can. Um, but I remember as a 22-year-old, uh, you know, just I think we were just married, and I was looking at George, great guy, but thinking that he was getting a little on in years. And now I'm here and going, he wasn't so old after all, right? The march of time, we feel it at different seasons, maybe not when we're really young, but as we get a certain age, the march of time, it's relentless, it goes on. Well, listen to what the teacher says in the verses that were read for us. In verse four, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. And in verse 11, no one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. What's he saying? On a cosmic scale, compared to the relative age and the stability of the earth, you and I are a blip in time. We are a blip. And not only that, here's the frustrating part for the teacher. Not only are we just a blip, but we are so easily forgotten. That's sobering, isn't it? Because I think we put a lot of importance into our lives. We feel like our lives matter. And here comes the teacher saying, you know what? In a generation, they won't even remember your name. What? That's depressing. I was uh, reading about the Methuselah tree in California. Has anybody heard of this tree? This Methuselah tree, they reckon, is almost 5,000 years old. Just imagine that for a second. A tree that's 5,000 years. That's the whole span of the story of Scripture. Like generations have come and gone, and that tree has been alive through that whole time. And that's what the teacher is saying. Compared to stuff that we see around us, we are so insignificant. Compared to that tree, we are just a blip. But, but that tree is a blip compared to that mountain. And that mountain is a blip compared to the universe. I mean, we're so small. 
We're so tiny. We're such a blip and we're so easily forgotten. So for the human and from our perspective under the sun, time marches on and we will easily be forgotten. And for the teacher, this makes life hevel. It makes life vaporous. It makes life a smoke. So in the march of time, here's a second discouraging thing. The certainty of death. Not only the march of time, but the idea is, is that life is short and then we die. That's it. In uh, chapter 3 and verse 19, listen to what he says. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. And that's why he goes on to say in chapter 7 and verse 2, it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Why? For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. I remember we used to do weird things when I was youth pastor and Christine was helping me. And one day we had this brilliant idea. We wanted our youth to contemplate death for some reason. And so we took them to a graveyard to do like, you could put, put um, uh, paper or something over top of the gravestone and, and rub it. And then it would, I don't know why. I, I think that might've been disrespectful to the people in the graveyard. This is not an idea I'm sharing, Eric, with you to do. But it was a sobering thought to, to recognize and to spend time in that graveyard and to consider, as it says, that death is the destiny for everyone. This past week, as I was uh, doing some research and reflecting, I actually came across a website that I don't encourage you to go to. It is actually called the World Death Clock. Has anybody come across this? <laughs> it's a, so discouraging. It's a clock that just counts down in real time the number of deaths that are occurring. I mean, it's based on stats from the previous year on how many people died in the year. But as you stare at this clock, it's like staring into eternity or, or maybe not eternity. It's staring into morbidity. It's just watching click by click by click. 157,000 people will die today. It's a lot of people. And so we have this re reality that we live with. And I think we all know it, don't we? We all know that life is terminal. We have a, a terminal diagnosis for each and every one of us. But often we try to avoid it. We try to avoid it in all kinds of different ways, through distraction or through trying to maintain our youth, through all kinds of myths and potions and everything that we try and do. We try and avoid that reality that's looming over us. But the teacher says, consider it. Take this to heart. The living should take this to heart, that death is certain certainty of death. We know that we'll all die, but the teacher wants us to take, take, us, take this to heart because his conclusion is that the inevitability of death means that all of life is hevel. It's all vapor. Okay, are you discouraged yet? Uh, are you feeling the depths of despair? Good. That's what good uh, hellfire and brimstone preachers try and do, right? So the march of time, the certainty of death, what on earth could be next? Well, he brings this last final thing, the random nature of life, the random nature of life. See, in Proverbs, as we mentioned, there seems to be a certain cause and effect. There's a predictability. In Proverbs, if you follow wisdom, your life should go well. But in Ecclesiastes, 
there's a reflection on that, that it doesn't always work that way. Has that been true to your experience? It doesn't always work that way. There's a glitch in the matrix. There's something called chance. And this is what the teacher observes in life under the sun, that so much of life just seems to be, it appears to be, left up to random chance. This is what he says in chapter 9, verse 11. I've seen something else under the sun. Remember, this is in the realm of our human observation, limited by our understanding. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. It's too random for me to understand. Do you ever feel that way? I think about 16 years ago, um, my professor and mentor, Stan Grentz, passed away. He was a teacher at Cary Theological College, brilliant man, uh, really, really funny, really, really kind and compassionate, caring. Uh, Stan also took great care of himself. I mean, he, he jogged, he ran, he ate good food. He didn't uh, go to excesses and everything. And he died at 55 of a brain aneurysm, March 12th, 2005. I remember being at his funeral service and people were gathered literally from around the world at, at First Baptist Church. And there's a group of us standing together. And one of the older pastors just looked at us and said, so are we going for burgers now? Like that was the, the feeling. Like what's the meaning? What's the purpose? Stan lived Proverbs. He lived in wisdom. And yet his life ended at 55. How can that be? I read this week about a, a lady in France, Jean Calment. And she spent her life doing everything that the doctor said not to do. She said uh, that she smoked, she drank, she played with guns, she ate excessive amounts of sugar and red meat, and she never ate breakfast. And she lived to 116. And so you see that, but we see that every day, don't we? Why do the wicked prosper when the righteous are suffering? Why? We do everything that's right, and yet we end up in the same place that we're supposed to avoid. And the teacher says, that's meaningless. That's meaningless to me. That's, that's vapor. That life is a smoke. It's robbed me of any sense of stability in life. Just this sheer apparent randomness to what happens in life. So that's what we have to contend with. Why is life vapor? Well, time marches on. Death is inevitable, and life is left to sheer dumb luck. That's what he says. That's how he feels. That's what he observes in life under the sun. Well, that's nice, isn't it? And uh, you didn't expect to go home discouraged today from church, but maybe you will be. Why is this in the Bible? I mean, aren't we supposed to come and find the hope of Christ in all this? And I just want to say we'll get there. <laughs> But there is some importance to this word and these words that we've been reading. In chapter 12 and verse 11 of Ecclesiastes, it says this, that the words of the wise are like goads. Do you know what a goad is? It's kind of like the end of a shepherd's staff. There's the hook end that's used to guide sheep or rescue them. But there's also a pointy end on the other part, and that's a goad. A goat is meant to prod the animal or prod the sheep or prod the cattle to move in a certain direction. 
and it's uncomfortable, and it's a little bit painful, not to the point of death, and not to the point of permanent damage, but it makes the, the animal uncomfortable enough that it moves in the direction that the shepherd wants it to move. Well, Ecclesiastes says, the words of this teacher are meant to be like goads to us. They're actually meant to make us uncomfortable. They're meant to make us feel a little bit of pain as we sit with it, as we wrestle with it, so that we begin to move in the right direction. So let me ask you this question as we reflect on this this morning. What observation has made you the most uncomfortable this morning? Is it the relentless march of time? When you consider that and reflect on it, do you just feel a sense of anxiety, a sense of discomfort? Or is it the certainty of death? Is that something that's weighing on your mind that you're, you're wondering about and you're uncertain about? Can you sit with that with a, for a little bit without becoming overwhelmed? Allow it to be something of a goad that makes you uncomfortable? Or is it just this idea of life's random nature? Just the, the, the seeming disparity between what we expect life should be and what it actually is. And how we see some people prosper that really shouldn't and others suffer that really shouldn't. And we're wondering, this is making me uncomfortable. How is this possible in a world that's supposed to be governed by God? So I'm going to leave that with you, but I don't want to leave you hanging Okay, all this is part of the deconstruction that is necessary. All this is part of that difficult diagnosis that we talked about. But I, I don't want to give away the whole prescription, but I do want to give you a little bit of hope. In the light of the observations of the teacher, Romans 6 and verse 23 really comes to mind for me. That first part, for the wages of sin is death. That's Ecclesiastes. That's the observation of the teacher. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we hear these words from uh, the book and your word this word of Ecclesiastes. We realize that it brings a certain heaviness, a certain reality, but also a certain truth of how we observe the world. But Father, as we sit with these observations, we pray this morning that we would not become overwhelmed by them, knowing that you have an answer, a solution, that you've provided it for us. Help us to move in the right direction, May these words make us uncomfortable enough that we become very discontent with life under the sun and move toward that eternal life that is in your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.